Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Amen. Okay, Luke chapter 1, verse 20. My voice is going crazy tonight, so we'll see how far I can get. But uh, Luke 1, 26. We'll start there. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who is called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now skip over to chapter 2. Verse 1, now in those days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus, you kids know this, right? All right, so just recite it. Okay, good job. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Now, one verse there, verse 7, is what I want to think about. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Pretty mundane details to the birth of the Son of God. Um, I'll share with you again Augustine's poem that I'm sure is from one of his sermons somewhere. But he said this, Man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth be accused of false witness. 
The teacher be beaten with whips. The foundation be suspended on wood. That strength might grow weak. And that the healer might be wounded. And that life might die. You know, if you read, I've been reading Augustine lately, Augustine on the Trinity. And, you know, it's what's surprising about Augustine, what's surprising about the early fathers is their writing is not very complicated. It's, it's really down to earth. It's asking the questions that we all ask. It's asking the questions that children ask and then searching the scriptures to find answers. And so it's very beautiful. I mean, he does get into some obscure uh, regions when he's uh, talking about the Trinity, but for the most part, he's just asking the questions that we have and trying to find answers in scripture and coming up with simple answers. So read the, read the fathers. Read the fathers especially on things like the Incarnation, uh, Christology, uh, the Trinity, um, the Church. What else? What else would I add to that list? Um, just fundamental Christian doctrines. Read, read the fathers. Now they can get weird and you have to, you have to um, always rely upon Scripture for the testimony of truth, but uh, the simplicity of their writing is very helpful. It's much like that poem there. I want to talk about the, the incarnation a little bit. As we contemplate what Scripture teaches about the second person of the Trinity being born of a woman, uh, our minds should boggle a little bit. And, and what's, frustrating, what's frustrating for all of us on a certain level is that our culture has replaced an incredible truth with a ridiculous myth. Right, the, the ridiculous myth of flying reindeers and elves and ugly sweaters and things like that. You know, infinitely less. I mean, why would you replace a beautiful truth with a stupid myth? Usually you would want to take a, a, a bland truth and replace it with a fantastical myth. But in this case, we've, we've gone the opposite and we've taken what is, what is a, an incredible, incredible, incredible reality and replaced it with that which is, um, is, I don't know, fill, yeah, fill in, fill in your own adjective. I mean, you think of this, the Son of God became man for the purpose of waging a final battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil that would result in his sin-enslaved and dead people being ushered into an eternal dwelling place where the Lamb is the light and the streets are made of gold and the mood is one of peace and rest always. Why would you ever, ever replace a truth like that? And somehow it still takes, you know, Nat King Cole singing about chestnuts roasting on an open fire to get us into the Christmas spirit? Are you kidding me? It's ridiculous. Um, We're playing with mud pies, is how how C.S. Lewis would, would put it, and they don't taste so good. And so, I mean... Thinking upon the incarnation of the Son of God, this is the glorious truth that we should, uh, we should loudly uh, be celebrating all throughout the year, all throughout uh, 
the, uh, the year, all through the summer, all through the Easter season. I mean, the incarnation should just be something that we're constantly thinking about, and not just in December. Um, we, we should be thinking about these things. How is it that one who is who was before there was material in the universe could be encompassed by a woman resting within her womb, growing from a single cell to a full-grown man? How could, and, and these are the questions that the early church fathers chew on. Things like that. Things where you're like, the same questions. How could God become a man? How could, how could God be in a womb? And they just start vamping on those questions. How could he who has no beginning or end, he who is only and always everywhere present, be enfleshed and dwell among us in, t- in a particular space? How could this holy God live within a fallen world? Okay, God is holy, right? How could a holy God live within a fallen world everywhere affected by sin, and have to feel the consequences of that fall by such things as as being hungry, right? And being tempted. Being tempted. How could the pre-existent Son of God assume human nature and take to Himself human flesh and blood? Well, the Scripture says very little about the how of the Incarnation. It says very little about the how. Um, the how of the deity and humanity coming together, the how of the Son of God's conception in the womb of the Virgin. The Gospel of Mark does not even mention it at all. doesn't mention the conception. Um, all, all we have are a few Old Testament prophecies and the very short matter-of-fact descriptions of what happened in the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, and John and a few other places in the letters of Paul and, and John, Philippians 2.8, Galatians 4.4, 4, um, a few other places. What we learn about the how of the incarnation is stated very simply like this. It, from the passage we read earlier in Luke, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, speaking to Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. That's what we know about the mechanism of the incarnation. Before they came together, Joseph and Mary, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. That's what it says in Matthew. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. A lot of information, right, about the mechanism of that conception. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have that in John 1.14. And then in Philippians 2, 6, and 7, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. So that's another piece of information that we, we have on, on the incarnation. The why of the incarnation, though, so that, that's, that's all of the, the how. Just those few verses, the how. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and he will overshadow you and you'll conceive. And so the traditional teaching of the church has been that the Holy Spirit impregnated an egg of the Virgin Mary. She supplied the humanity and the Holy Spirit supplied the deity. Okay, 
Beyond that, there's not much we can say about it. We don't know how the first cell is divided. We don't, we, you know, that's not revealed to us. But it was a conception. It was a conception unlike natural conception, right? Which was a sperm and an egg. This was the Holy Spirit and an egg. And so that is why, because he was not generated in the normal sense, that is why he didn't what? He didn't, what, what did Jesus not have that we have? A sin nature. He did not inherit Adam's sinful nature. Right, because of the the um, the holiness of that conception, because of the the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> now, the why of the incarnation, though, is elaborated upon in the Scriptures. In a nutshell, we learn from Scripture that the fall of man into sin made the incarnation of the Word of God ne- absolutely necessary. The fall of man into sin made the incarnation necessary. How this works out in the decrees of God. Um, you know, what order, what, uh, I don't know. And we'll leave that to, uh, to another day. Um, Romans 8.19 says this, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the, one, the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. And the obedience of Jesus is certainly on display in his humble act of taking on the likeness of sinful flesh, his incarnation. Note that it is in regard to the sinfulness of man that the obedience of Jesus was necessary. Right? The sinfulness of man necessitates the obedient actions and the humble actions of Jesus. Um, what we learn from Scripture is that God does not overlook sin. Right? I mean, the, the drastic extreme of Jesus taking on the flesh is a result of God not just overlooking sin. It's God taking sin on fully and dealing with it in actuality, right? He doesn't just say, well, man fell, I'll just, I'll just wipe away his sin and we'll start over. No, no, he deals with it. He does not just say do-over, right? He doesn't just say do-over, but he makes what was broken whole and... That through the work of the Son of God. God is a God who brings light out of darkness, who fixes what is broken, who sets things straight without corrupting his own character. Right? He will be just and the one who justifies. Right? If he said do over, he would not be just. Right? That would be just to sweep sin under the rug and move on. So he will be just and the one who justifies. And that necessitates the obedient actions of Jesus. Now, it's worth noting that even from the beginning of the church, there were those who said that Jesus did not become a man. There have always been heretics who said that Jesus did not become a man, did not have flesh, only seemed to have flesh, right? He put on a good uh, a show. It was some sort of uh, hologram. It was some sort of appearing of flesh, but it was not real flesh. And that, of course, is heresy. And it's alive and well today, and we see it opposed in a nutshell in in John's first epistle. He warns of those who are teaching such things in the fourth chapter, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses 
what? That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist, right? It's like, this is the uh, prototypical heresy to deny that Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That is Christian doctrine. To deny that is to deny Scripture's teachings. But But it's also... It's not just, you know, abstractly to deny uh, an abstract doctrine. It is to lose a whole, it is to lose all the comfort of Scripture. It's to lose every one of the comforts of Scripture. So let's zoom in a little bit. The fall and sin is the backdrop of Jesus' incarnation. Our fall into sin necessitated Jesus' coming in the flesh, condescending in that way. It gives us the big picture why. But what did the incarnation of the the Son of God accomplish more specifically? What are some of the precious truths that flow from the Word of God taking on flesh? First, the incarnation made the Son of God... uh, This is is an obvious statement. The The incarnation made the Son of God one of the human race. Stop and think about that. Stop for a minute this this Christmas and think about the fact that God became one member of the human race. The philosophers, if you have read them, treat God as if it, they wouldn't say he, was a concept, right? A pure form of logic, a power or a force that is perfect but distant. Perfect but untouchable. Perfect but, but not able to be comprehended. Scripture teaches that God is wisdom. Perfect, transcendent. Yes, but it also clearly teaches that He is personal. He is close. He is right here. And nowhere do we learn that more than in the, the doctrine of the incarnation of the Son of God. <coughs> the incarnation of the Word of God. How much more imminent and intimate could God get with His creatures than through an incarnation? Um, It's impossible to conceive of some more humble act meant to show love toward mankind. It's it's John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Right? Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So many people prefer that God of the philosophers, right? You know people who prefer that God of the philosophers? They could almost do do Christianity until you get to Jesus, and then they're like, "That's uh, that's too common. It's too low. So many people prefer the God of the philosophers. The God of the philosophers is pristine and packaged very nicely, but not at all helpful in dealing with your problem, the predicament of sin. If you are, if you're positive about the nature of man and delude yourself with thinking that man is basically good-natured contrary to 
every bit of evidence that any source gives on this topic, not just Scripture, but every newscast, every newspaper, every book, every movie, then an only transcendent and distant concept is all you really need. You may then live like those Athenians who, being deluded about their own nature, like to spend time doing what? Spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Something new. They just got together and said, you know what? I heard this fascinating new thing. You know, man's origin. It's, a, it's an origin story. We're, we're just part of a big alien, right? They would, they would get together and talk about things like that. But the God of the philosophers is not the living and true God. The living and true God is one who said, Right as he was forming man, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then he didn't just shoot off into his, his cosmic office out somewhere where we can't see him. Um, in the pure space of reason and logic. He made a garden for man and woman, a garden in which God Himself walked in with man. Now that kind of intimacy, that kind of love, that kind of attention from God is, is amazing, isn't it? Have you known that kind of attention from God Almighty? Have you known that? Well, take that intimacy and love and attention up a thousand notches and you have a good value for the incarnation of the Son of God. The Son of God became, became one of the human race. He entered into the canvas of the world that he himself had painted. The incarnation shows that man has been kept as the apple of God's eye. That man is precious to, to God. That man is the height and center and focus of God's everlasting love. Jesus Jesus didn't become a cow. Jesus didn't become a, a star. Right? He did not become a tree. He did not become a building or a temple. He did not become a mathematical equation. He did not become a poem or a painting. He did not become just a heart or just a brain or just a spirit or just a soul. He became a man. Soul, spirit, body. And that is a precious truth. The Son of God took on the likeness of sinful flesh and all the benefits of that act of humble love are mankind's to enjoy. They're ours to enjoy. We, we get to reap all the fruits of that agonizing humility of Jesus Christ. What do we gain because God became one of the human race? Well, first, sympathy. You get sympathy from God. Sympathy from God Almighty as He lives as a high priest. His love for us is not just theoretical, but it's, it's experiential. It's, it's sympathetic. right? Hebrews 2, For since He Himself was tempted in that which He has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. 
He's gone through what you've gone through. He has been tempted, right? But we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Right? Jesus knows the miseries of this life. And he said, and, and that, that verse tells us, approach the throne of grace confidently because Jesus knows you'll find grace in time of need. What do we gain because God became one of the human race? To an example and pattern for our lives. He showed us what it is to know God and to love God, not just with words, but with actions. By doing himself what he requires of us. Right? Jesus has already done what he is requiring of us. He doesn't, he's not just the one who commands, having never done himself. He is commanding what he has done. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Jesus walked a certain way. He calls us to walk in the same way. He showed us the example. What do we gain because God became one of the human race? Three, the ennobling truth that Jesus will forever be a man. Think of that. It's not that when God ascended, when he rose from the dead and ascended and was seated to the right hand of God, and when he comes again, does he cease being a man at some point? No. That, those two natures are combined together forever. Right? The Son of Man. So the ennobling truth that Jesus will forever be a man. Jesus did not just tempor- temporarily become a man, although some heretics will tell you that that's the case. He forever combined deity and humanity in one person. When we stand in the presence of God, we will see Jesus the God-man. We will see we will see wounds on his arms, his actual arms. We will see wounds on his legs. Right? We will see a, the, the, the wounds on his side. <clears throat> they also said, Acts 1, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He's not coming back as a superhero, transformed by some, some substance he found somewhere in the universe. No, he comes back as a man, the God-man. Now, is that not an incomprehensible love? We think it quite satisfying and joyful when our friends start liking the things we like. Right When we start having things in common with people, that's when we get excited about people. Um, the camaraderie of holding things in common, of going you know, crazy over the newest Star Wars films coming out, which some of you are geeking out about. Um, <clears throat> you know, for others, it's you know, the, the, the new, new kind of roasted coffee bean, that, uh, the light roast, you know, and, and 
Um, but he, here we see the Son of God not just holding things in common with his creatures, but as Scripture says, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He does not just hold things in common, but he becomes what we are. He becomes a man. And it's stupendous, right? The incarnation made it possible for a representative head of the human race, the Son of God, to be obedient to God after the first representative head, Adam, failed to be obedient. Now that should always get you excited. That shouldn't just be abstract uh, theology for you. Romans 5, right? So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of the righteous there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Do you realize the significance of that? Children. A man was perfectly obedient to God, and he now represents you if you have faith in him. He did everything that God required of him. And he stands before God, and God says to him, well done. And if you, by faith, are united to him, then God is saying, well done to you as well. Without the incarnation, the whole process would have been a do-over or a sham, a false transaction, a rewriting of God's justice, a rewriting of, of all order. Jesus, the Son of Man and Son of God, happily obeyed where the first Adam proudly rebelled. What did that first Adam do? Children, what did that first Adam do? That's such an easy question. I mean, come on. I heard Athen. What? What did he do? He did that. And what, what did God told him to do? Not eat from that tree, right? Right? A proud rebel. A proud rebel. But Jesus fixed and conquered and triumphed over death where the first Adam broke and compromised and died. Right, the first Adam failed in that one little command, but Jesus obeyed every single command fully. And because he did this as a man, he can be your representative. He can represent you. There is no salvation without this kind of representation. The incarnation also allowed for a true mediator between God and man. Uh, Calvin said, consider how important was the office of the mediator to so restore us to God's grace that we who belong to the lost race of Adam should become God's children and heirs of his kingdom. Who could have done this had not the Son of God himself been made man and taken what was ours in order to give us what was his, making ours by grace what was his by nature? Incarnation provided a man to die as our sin substitute. The incarnation provided a righteous man to live as our righteousness substitute. 1 Timothy 2, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. 
That glorious hymn of praise to Jesus is all about his work as the God-man. And then Colossians 1, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Note that it was blood. Blood. It was blood. It was real blood. It was red blood. The red, real, wet, warm blood of a real man that propitiated God and made peace for you. Jesus Christ, as the mediator of a covenant ratified by his blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, he had to be a man. He had to take on the flesh so that he could truly mediate between God and man. This is why scripture constantly mentions his blood, blood which I might add he did not possess before he became a man. He did not possess blood until he was, he got his humanity from Mary. In the same way he took the cup also after blood saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In him we have redemption through his blood by now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So the incarnation of the Son of God is so much more than the superficialities that now mark our celebrations this time of year. There are messages here and there about the wonder of the babe in the manger, and there are important things to be said by giving gifts and being generous with one another, but we must not, cannot lose sight of the fact that without the incarnation we would all be left to represent ourselves before God, but we wouldn't be clothed in perfect humanity. We, we, would, we, would, um, we wouldn't have a representative who is perfect in our place, and we wouldn't have the blood-drenched mediation of Jesus Christ. And if that were so, eternal life would be impossible For every man. A holy God would be pleased to dispense with every one of us and cast every one of us into hell. At least then he would be just. Instead, 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 but God, right? That Ephesians, but God. God didn't leave you to represent yourself. God gave you a representative. Right? Instead, Jesus became a man, as I said at the outset, for the purpose of waging a final battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil that would result in his sin-enslaved and dead people being ushered into an eternal dwelling place where the Lamb is the light and the streets are made of gold and the mood is always peace and always rest. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did for us in his incarnation. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he did not regard equality with you a thing to be 
thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. Becoming a man, Father, and representing us, and living perfectly, and, and yet suffering the agonies of, of life in a, in a fallen world. Undergoing hunger, knowing your wrath, knowing your, your, your turning from him. All to benefit our souls so that we might, when we die and our souls are immediately transported into your presence, we may say, Jesus is our only hope. He represents me. Lord, thank you for this. Pray that we would think long and hard about these glorious truths in the coming days. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.